0: Christian Educational Ministries is pleased to present Ronald L. Dart. Would you agree that Christianity is a moral religion? It's almost an inane question, isn't it? I mean, I see blank stares. I mean, why would anyone even ask The question, is Christianity a moral religion? Well, it's not an inane question, because not all religions down through history have been all that moral. If you know very much about some of the history of some of the ancient world, you'll be aware of the incredible human sacrifice that has oftentimes been offered, including the firstborn children and sealing of firstborn children's bodies and the walls and foundations of cities. Uh, you're, You're aware of the Greek religion at all. You're aware that much of their worship involved Uh, excessive use of alcohol, also involved the use of sex in religious worship in the temple. was a rather novel approach, one might think, but from what what I gather in my limited study of the history of religion, it was not all that knowledge at all. Some of the African religions involved the use of hallucinogenic drugs so that people went into trances and had incredible visions under the influence of those drugs, which then formulated their religion and their structure strictly out of the depths the drug released depths of somebody's mind some of these religions followed some very strange lines at times in history now the jewish and christian religions allow say alcohol and sex and actually say that the proper use of alcohol is fine and sex in marriage is a very good thing and as paul put it undefiled however they Both the religion of the Old Testament under Moses and the religion of the New Testament under, with Jesus as our, our Christ condemned the excessive use of alcohol, condemned the wrong use of sex, and in fact seems to have gone out of its way, both cases, to keep alcohol and sex apart from religious observances. In the Old Testament, a priest was not allowed to drink before he went in to serve in God's temple. In the New Testament, the only part any alcoholic beverage plays at all in our services is one tiny thimbleful of wine in connection with the Passover service. Otherwise, strong drink and wine is kept strictly apart from and not in any way associated with our religious services. And I've noticed an interesting thing and often wondered why it was back in Old Testament times that there were certain restrictions on people coming up to the temple and serving God when they had had sexual relationships within a very close period of time beforehand and of course Moses told the Israelites at Mount Sinai to be ready against the day the Ten Commandments were to be given as he said come not at your wives and you say well I wonder why that was what would be wrong with that there's certainly nothing wrong God's law permits sexual relationships between a husband and wife I can only understand that when I understand how involved some of these things were in the religions of the world at that time and that God was just simply keeping both alcohol and sex, away from the, his religion and his religious observances. But that's not the point of the sermon today. The question has to do not merely with those items, but has to do with whether or not Christianity is a moral religion. If Christianity is a moral religion, how do we account for the persistent moral decay among Christian people? We have to account for it, you know. It is there. It is something we've got to deal with if we're going to make the claim Christianity is a moral religion. Because right from the very earliest times, moral decay sat in in the church. Paul writes to the Corinthians. He said, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and a fornication that's not even so much as named among the Gentiles that a man should have his father's wife. And he proceeds not merely to judge this one individual who had had a problem, For indeed, there would be nothing that surprising about a church member having a problem of this nature at some point in time, would there? It's the sort of thing that could happen. What Paul is concerned about, and if you'll read that again, you'll see it as clear as day, is not the individual's problem, but the fact that the whole church's standards reflected a problem. He saw not merely a man with a problem, He saw a church where its moral fabric was beginning to rot and crack and dry out. And he was concerned about their ego, about their pride, and about the standards that they maintained for one another. You find the many, many instances in the New Testament, as the reference in Jude, the fourth verse where he talks of those prophets that would come along who would turn the grace of our Lord Jesus into lasciviousness. It was already becoming a problem, as people would say, well, you know, we have grace, we're not under the law. And then they began to go into, and license is a a word which simply means you're allowed to do as you please. But lasciviousness is a particularly ugly-sounding word, isn't it? Lascivious. And the implications of it are a, a serious lapse in moral conduct was being allowed and even to some degree, perhaps encouraged under the, uh, the the cover, as it were, of grace. Then, of course, there are the letters of the seven churches at Asia, where two different groups of them are condemned because leadership in the church was teaching and permitting fornication to take place in the church, and holding, in one case, the doctrine of Balaam, which seems to have been one that put gain above godliness. Now this continued on down through the ages, and history is replete with illustrations of these things that strike the church. And it is, it's not surprising in one sense of the word when you understand what human nature is like to read some of those accounts. But it is surprising when you think in terms of the fact that here are a group of people who have committed themselves, accepted and took to their bosom the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. All right, these people have, have taken that on themselves. They actually call themselves his ministers. They call themselves his servants. The accounting, and you can read it for yourself, and your best place to go to read these accounts are from Catholic writers themselves. But the accounts of the activities of some of the popes in years gone by are enough to, you know, for want of a better term, I'll use the trite expression, curl your hair. There's a book out called uh, uh, in, uh, sorry, The March of Folly by Barbara Tuckman, and she has three or four chapters in the center of it having to do with the Renaissance popes. She's dealing with the folly of government as it takes place in the world, the folly of governments, considering the Vatican a government, and deals with a period of time in history leading up to the Protestant Reformation when the Catholic Church was wrought with such corruption that we had popes on the throne who were the son, the illegitimate son, of previously existing popes, where popes oftentimes would have not, not one but several mistresses where papal elections, where the conclaves took place, in one occasion there were as many as 20 dead bodies found, murdered around the Vatican area during the process of the election of one pope as people jockeyed for position to try to get the man they wanted into place. Now this again from people who had accepted, clasped to their bosoms the teachings of Jesus, who called themselves Christians, who claimed to be the only, one and only, true church of God upon the face of the earth. And yet this kind of conduct found itself or was manifested among these people. How could this be? Why is this so? Now we could look back and say, well, it's because they went wrong and so forth, And, and look at ourselves that we haven't gone wrong, so we haven't done those things. But the problem is that moral decay can be found on every side today, even among people whom we accept as being Christians. And in fact, we are no exception. That sort of thing creeps in among us very readily. And you have to account for it. You have to deal with it. If Christianity is a moral religion, how do you account for the moral decay that tends to take place inside of you? There is an analogy, actually, in the physical world and physical environment. We look up into the heavens and we find there are stars there burning with incredible heat and like nuclear furnaces. And yet, as we look at them, we realize that these great solar engines are putting off energy at at a phenomenal rate and are scattering it throughout the solar system, and it's energy that they shall never receive again. The word is entropy, and it simply refers to that state of affairs in nature by which everything that has energy is tending to resolve itself toward a state of no energy. As one man put it, it's like the whole thing was wound up like a giant clock, and it's been running down ever since, and that is so true. It is so true. You know, the same thing is true of you, but periodically you, like a clock, get wound up. And in between those windings up, there tends to be entropy, a cooling off, a winding down, an easing up, a letting go. It is the natural state of affairs for human beings. We either wind ourselves up or somebody else winds us up, but in between, we tend to wind down. The question, though, is, still not answered, why moral decay among religious people even among those whom we might recognize as being the closest to the truth. There are several scriptures, four in particular, I want to take you to today to discuss the problem. So maybe we can kind of understand it and the process of doing so come to understand ourselves a little bit better. The first is Ecclesiastes 8.11. The context doesn't tell us much or add much to the meaning from us, so we'll just talk about the verse itself. It says simply, Because sentence against an evil work, is not executed speedily. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Now, every neuron in your brain registers that that's true. You know that that's so. That whenever somebody does something, and he gets away with it, he is emboldened to do it again. And if he does it again and gets away with it, He is not only emboldened, but someone who saw him do it and get away with it twice is himself emboldened to do it again. And so it goes that the more it is done and the more it is accepted, even really accepted or apparently accepted, the more committed human beings are to doing those things that they want to do if they can seem to get away with it. First principle. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil, because many aspects of evil appear to be rewarding. They feel good. They actually bring monetary gain. So why not if there is no punishment? That's a simple principle, very real, and of course it will work just the same in your family as it will anywhere else. Next scripture is the 50th psalm of the 50th psalm, and a very striking example it is. Chapter 50, verse 15. I'm sorry, 16. Under the wicked, God says, What have you to do to declare my statutes, or that you should take my covenant in your mouth? Seeing you hate instruction, and you cast my words behind you. Now here's a category of people who just flat doesn't like to be taught. They don't want to hear somebody stand before them and give them instruction. You hate it. He said, when you saw a thief, you consented with him. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, it's a very common situation in our world today. It goes on all the time. There was a candid camera that did this interesting little thing in a supermarket where they actually had some people in there deliberately, with the knowledge of the management, doing shoplifting around the place. And they had their cameras positioned so they could catch not only the shoplifter, But another innocent, unknowing customer in the place who was busily doing his shopping and minding his own business. All right. Shoplifter goes around and in the sight of a customer, and the shoplifter, mind you, is in on the gag, reaches down, slips something inside of his coat. The innocent shopper down at the other end of the aisle sees that, turns away very quickly, goes right on through the checkout stand, leaves the place, and says nothing. They thought... That's too bad. That, that's, uh, that was surprised them. They didn't really know what to expect, but that wasn't what they expressed. They, they said, What's the try it again. Set it up again. It happened again. This went on hour after hour with the shoplifters becoming more and more flagrant, and people just kept on ignoring them. They wondered, well, how far can we take this thing? And It was really fascinating to watch it on, on the screen. Finally when one of the shoplifters went over and began to take things out of the basket of one of the customers, the customer finally went to the management and complained. Now, let me ask you this. Who pays for that? Well, surely you know that we do. You know, you're, you're a customer of that market, you buy there, and you see somebody shoplifting, that person is stealing from you even if he didn't take it out of your basket. Because the, uh, the owner of the store is not going to absorb that loss. He's going to crank it in as overhead and he's going to work it all into his price and guess who's going to pay for it? All of us are going to pay for it. And so we will sit right there and we will watch somebody steal from us and from everybody else in this store, not just from the management. You know, we think, well, you know, Safeway's a big company. They can handle it. Well, they could, but they won't. Brookshire's a big company. They can handle it. They could, but they won't. Why should they? They'll pass it on to you. So you're allowing that person to steal from widows and orphans and fatherless children when you get right down to it, because they're people that have to pay higher prices for groceries just like you do. He saw a thief, he said, and you consented with him. Now, that's not a real big thing, but it is a moral factor that you do not consent with thieves, and you do not overlook crimes that are committed in society, and you do not walk away from people who have been injured or hurt or attacked and not help them. That's not the thing for moral people to do. He said, you saw a thief, you consented with it. You have been partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and you speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Gossip, one of the great crimes that among even God's own people. Then he says an astonishing thing. He said, these things have you done. And I kept silence. And you thought that I was altogether such a one as yourself. You thought I was like you. You thought I think like you. You thought I respond to things like you. In other words, you misinterpreted God's silence. That is one of the most dangerous things a human being can ever do. All right, you do something you shouldn't do. We won't discuss what your particular little peccadillo is. And you do it and nothing happens. Why does God not swat you down like a fly on a rug right there? Why not? Why does he allow you to continue on? And do it again. And do it again. And do it again, and he still does nothing. I'm going to tell you why, and I want you to remember, and never forget it. God is allowing you to do that in order to give you room to turn around. He does not expect you always to be able to just come to a screeching halt, do an about-face, and go charging off at the same speed in the opposite direction. He realizes that you've got to slow down and turn around and accelerate out of a situation again. God gives you room to turn around. If you assume that he doesn't disapprove of what you have done because he did nothing about it, what is the result? He said, well, he said, I'm going to reprove you and set them in order before your eyes. You'd better think about this, you that forget God, lest I tear in pieces and there be no one to deliver you. So we have two big factors then at work in why we allow moral decay to take place in ourselves and among ourselves. First is because there isn't any immediate or apparent punishment. And secondly, we misinterpret God's silence. We we tend to think that, that maybe he doesn't disapprove of it as much as we thought he did because nothing has happened to me in the process. Maybe maybe God thinks about these things like I do. Maybe it isn't that big a deal. Maybe it's not that important. Maybe God isn't that concerned about it. He said, oh boy, you know, do you really, is that what you really think? Do you really have any right to think that? where do you get it? Is it just because I haven't done anything? Is it just because I kept silence? Is it just because I gave you room in which you could turn yourself around and head off in the other direction? The third reason why this goes on, why it becomes a problem, is indicated for us back in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, just one verse again, but very pregnant with meaning. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. Talking about a totally different subject, he says, "...for we dare not make ourselves of the number... Or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. For they, measuring themselves by themselves, and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Making a big mistake. And that never happens, does it? That people would measure themselves by themselves. Okay, you and I are old drinking buddies, you know. We have for several years been getting together three and four times a week. You know, after work, we stop by at one of the local little places down there. It's a cool and pleasant place. And, and we have two beers and we go on our way home. That's our custom. We're old friends. Now, on the other hand, you, you really stick to it. You only ever, you never have but, but the two beers. But once in a while, because I'm thirsty and I drink faster than you do, I wind up ordering a third one. It happens about once every other week, something like that. And we go on doing this for some little period of time. And maybe I began to have, you never say anything, and of course you, but you just keep on doing what you're doing. But then one day I notice you order a third one. And I think, well, you know, maybe maybe my third beer isn't such a bad idea after all. And uh, I began to have my third beer twice as often. And so then a few weeks later, you start having a third beer another day when you weren't normally doing it. First thing you know, three beers has become our normal. Not that we're still in any trouble necessarily, it's just that I had a standard for myself and you had a standard for yourself and that standard has had a tendency and it always will tend to do They will tend to come together We'll, we'll work on one another and I will notice what you do and you will notice what I do and you realize the whole time that we are measuring ourselves not by some standard of measurement somewhere apart from us we're measuring ourselves by one another and we change and the truth is that when I am measuring myself by you and you are measuring yourself by me, before long, what is really happening is that I am measuring myself by myself. Because what I am seeing is a reflection of me in you. This is why this sort of thing begins to take place. What Paul means when he says people who measure themselves by themselves. I thought about this, and I, you know, there are times when I feel a little bit sorry for people who live off in Montana, or or over in Wyoming or, you know, someplace out in farm country up in Iowa who have no local church to attend, and they're lucky if they can get together with any of the brethren on the holy days. They really are isolated and off by themselves. I I, I feel sorry for them a lot of times, but I don't feel sorry for them in this particular way. For they will not be pulled down as much by watching somebody that's not even in the church sin, As they will by observing sin in their own brothers in the church. It's funny, but we do have double standards, you know. We expect more of one another than we do of people in the world. And so I could spend a lot of my life wandering around. I could drive a truck up and down the roads as a truck driver. And I would always consider myself against them. It would always be they, never we. For indeed, I would recognize their habits and their customs and their so forth. But I would always defend myself because they are the world. And I am not of the world. But you see, for all of us who meet together in a church, two things happen. We pull each other up, and we pull each other down. And it works both ways. And we are just as good at one as we are at the other. Never thought of that, did you? We are just as good at as one, one as we are at the other. Sure, you need strengthening by being around brethren. Brethren. But probably for every bit of strength you derive from your brethren, you will at the same time imbibe of their weaknesses. Church is a good thing. We need churches. And we grow in churches. And we accomplish and we work together in churches. But it's not without risk. All of you scattered people in the extended church, think about that a while. Think about it a while. It's not without its risks. You out there can look at Jesus Christ and the Bible, and that's really about all you've got to go on. And the temptation of saying, well, it must not be quite that bad because Ron does it, Doesn't, isn't there. Doesn't exist. Isn't a factor, is it? Well, you think about it and you really begin to analyze this, this pattern, of course, of you and I drinking can stop anywhere. It could stop at three and never go anywhere, go, go above that. But it will not really stop as long as we continue to let group practices set the norms. In other words, whatever the group will put up with or tolerate, if that's the norm, if that's right, if that's what defines it, the pattern can go anywhere and probably will. Now, when you think about this problem of moral decay, about these reasons for it, there's one more I want to ask about. Is it because we don't know clearly the difference between right and wrong, because we're in doubt about right and wrong in important areas? Well, I really I really don't think so. Think this, for example. Do you believe that it's right to go into a closet, a dark closet somewhere, with another man's wife and engage in a little necking? Is it right or is it wrong? Now, you see, by my asking the question to you, Stim, here I am standing right up here in front of everybody asking the question. And if we were then to ask for a show of hands, you'd all agree. You'd all have to agree. And it's an illustration of one thing I'm trying to tell everybody. Is that at the point in time when you and, let's say, somebody else's husband or wife began to drift off down the hallway toward a closet, you won't even think about that. And if I make you think about it, you know right from wrong. It isn't that you don't know. And you will never in your life be able to use that as an excuse. You you may try to use it as an excuse, but I'll tell you when you will not use it as an excuse. When you stand on the sea of glass before your Maker and He calls you into question for it, there isn't going to be an excuse because you're not going to be able to look at Him and say, Lord, I really didn't know any better than that. I, I really, I just thought it wasn't that big a deal. I thought maybe it was relatively harmless. You know, you want to watch out for that word, relatively. Related to what? Harmless related to what? Is it going to cut any ice with God that relatively speaking in your lifetime you do less harm than Jack the Ripper? I mean, relatively speaking, it wasn't all that bad. But, you know, relative is a, is a rather strange term. Let me put it to you this way, though, and see how you can swallow this one. Can you imagine Jesus Christ in the dark in a closet with someone else's wife? No, you can't, can you? You know you couldn't. You would not find him groveling in there or trying to cover himself up or hide himself from the light when you opened the door and found him there. It would never happen. Not at all. Not any way. We know the difference between right and wrong. You know what's funny? It is even honored in a breach most of the time. Listen to country western music very much. You'll hear a lot of songs about cheating. And even the ones that say, well, it can't be wrong because it feels so good, are giving themselves away. Because if they didn't suspect that it was wrong, they wouldn't write the song that way. They would say, it's wonderful, it feels so good. They wouldn't say, it can't be wrong, because implicit is, it can't be wrong. Can it? Quietly? Timidly? And of course, they all know what it is, because they call it cheating. And the whole, the whole genre of that kind of music is called cheating song. I remember the Kendalls talked about they wanted to get away from that because all they had done in the beginning of their, of their career that shot them up to stardom, they had done nothing but cheating songs. That's, that, that's what they called them. So they know it. They know right from wrong. Truth comes at us sometimes and from many strange directions. Now, I will admit, though, that it is easy to become confused, morally speaking, in this world because there is an enormous amount of stuff thrown at you from one direction or the media acceptance of immoral behavior is something that I still have to shake my head over. And it's almost as though there is a determined, practiced uh, uh, approach to developing a tolerance of deviant behavior, all the way from showing that the one person in a a, a particular sketch that makes any sense at all happens to be gay. He is the only person who is sensible. All these other people who are straight people are a bunch of idiots. That implants a little thought in your mind, doesn't it, along the way? It's not realistic, but it certainly gives you ideas. You see a couple living together out of wedlock in marriage consistently, week in and week out, and it's it's presented as just with all of the ups and downs of marriage with no particular penalties attached to it. It is presented to us as acceptable behavior. They are nice people. We like them. We love them. We laugh with them. We cry with them. We really enjoy them, and they are by God's standards, living in sin. But you see, if you don't look at God and you look at that, you will finally come to see, well, that's not such a bad thing. We look around us and we can see corruption in government, and of course, even that, and also corruption even in religious government, which is sometimes observed, can lead to disillusionment and confusion and even cynicism about morals and about moral standards. And even religious teachers sometimes have put forth relative standards of morality, saying this is wrong under these circumstances, but it might be all right in other circumstances. There is something, though, that I want you to understand. You know, you can can feel at times like you are standing in the middle of a, a maze of moral confusion. You know, you're like one of these people in the maze over in Hampton Court, which is made completely of hedge. It's higher than a man's head, and if you just plunk yourself down or you start in and make your way through it, you get lost very quickly. And, and, and you, you can, every, every turn looks exactly like every other turn, and you just don't know which, to, which way to go. It's very easy in today's world to get to feeling like you're just in the middle of such a maze as far as your moral standards are concerned what is right and what is wrong. But I want you to understand something about that maze it is an illusion, it does not exist the only reason you perceive it at all is because you have decided not to know what's really right now you may not believe me at first but when you think about this you're going to come to see how true it is that all you have to do is close your eyes make up your mind that you're going to know what is right you're going to look at it squarely and you're going to decide whether this thing is right or wrong and you will open your eyes and the maze will not be anywhere there Your way will be clear. And you'll know what's right. It's not hidden from you. You've read your Bible. You've got on your knees and prayed and talked to God. Most of you people have been through the waters of baptism and the Holy Spirit is in you. The only reason you have difficulty or become confused about a matter is because you have decided not to know it. Turn back with me to Romans and I'll prove it to you. Romans chapter 1. A familiar scripture and very pointed. The problem with it is we have a tendency to push it away, the truth. He goes on to say, because that which may be known of God is plain to them because God has showed it to them. Now, of all people, could you and I claim not to know and make it stick? Of all people? I mean, he's talking of Gentile philosophers here, but if they couldn't make it stick, How much less can we make it stick of claiming to be ignorant or claiming not to know and and allowing ourselves to drift morally? He said, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power, his divinity. They are without excuse. The Gentile philosophers are without excuse. There is no way they can excuse themselves. How much you and I, how much less you and I, Because that when they knew God, and every one of us will sit here and say, yeah, I I know God. When they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. They were not grateful. They became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Remember that word. Remember it. Fools is what they became. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. What was the result of this abdication of moral responsibility, of the suppression of truth? He said, well, God gave them up through uncleanness, through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. They changed the truth of God into a lie. They worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. Even their women changed the natural use into that which is against nature. Likewise, the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust toward one another, men with men working what is unseemly and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error, which was fit. And I am quite certain that this is not the first occasion of AIDS on our planet. I have a feeling it was very much in evidence back in the ancient world as well. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. I am thinking right now about a lot of friends that I have known who for one reason or another have come to a place in their life where they no longer really wanted to retain God in their knowledge. Because there's a funny thing about having God in your knowledge. It's a funny thing about being aware of Him and thinking about Him. Because, you know, you, you think God exists. He knows me. He says there's not a hair of my head that falls to the ground that he does not know about. Now, it's hard for me to hold that thought in the foremost of my consciousness while I am stealing something from my employer. Very difficult. Very hard for me to do that when I leave the wife of my youth and go out to a singles bar in the evening, right? be very, take off my wedding ring and try to pretend when I'm out of town and say that that I'm a single fellow looking around. Very hard for me to keep that thought in my mind that not one hair from my head falls to the ground and God, there's one more or less in his computer. Do you suppose he doesn't notice where you are when it falls? Do you suppose he doesn't notice who you're with? Do you suppose he's utterly unaware of what you are doing? Of course not. But you see, all you can do at certain times in your life is to suppress the knowledge of God. So there are times when anyone will be tempted to sort of quietly, and again, it's not a thoughtful process, it's more of a, an, a subliminal process, to quiet the voice of God within you. God gave them over because of this to reprobate mine, to do what was not convenient. Boy, what an understatement. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication and wickedness and covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy and murder and debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters of, uh, and inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. He goes on then in verse 32 after list, finishing this terrible list, who, knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, Not only do the same, but they have pleasure in them to do them. How is that possible? Well, he's just told you that they knew, past tense, God. They knew and they accepted the judgments. But there came a time in their life when they suppressed that knowledge, when they didn't want to retain the consciousness of God. And you cannot do certain things in your life and face the consciousness of God. It won't work. So God has got to be removed from your consciousness. And oh, how easily it is done. And how easily it is that you just, you know, the, the, the methodology is very simple. You just refuse to think about it. And we assume that in the process of not thinking about it, we have somehow managed to get ourselves free of any guilt or involvement or, or, or penalty connected with it. Don't we? We sort of assume that, I'll, we'll say, well, I didn't think. But do you know what the reply to that would be in a divine, a true divine judgment when God is really calling you to account? He'll look at you and he'll say, Yeah, I know you didn't think. You decided not to think, didn't you? You deliberately decided you wouldn't think about it, didn't you? And really, you may want to reply, Oh, no, no, that wasn't it. But that's going to be a time when there'll be no way you can give any answer except the absolute, unvarnished, unpolished whatever you want to call it truth it's got to come out it's got to be said in the face of God he goes on in chapter 2 verse 14 saying for when the Gentiles who do do not have the law do by nature the things contained in the law these not having the law are law to themselves because they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing them witness accusing or excusing one another do you realize what that says? That says that every man, woman, and child who ever has walked upon the face of this earth has had written into him... There is written into his genes, as a matter of fact. From the day of his birth, he has had written into him the tools by which he can discern right from wrong in moral areas. There are religious areas having to do with the worship of God he might never come to. But as far as right from wrong in moral areas... It is written into every man who has ever lived. And you know the only way that you don't know it is because you have decided not to know it. The instant you decide to know the illusion of being in a a confused and disillusioned and cynical world and not knowing right from wrong, the instant you decide to know, that illusion is gone. And you can know. And you will be held accountable. That's rather sobering when you think about it. You know, and Christianity is a moral religion. And then you look at yourself and you look at the institution of which you might be a part or of institutions of which you have been a part. And you look at there and you can look wherever you wish. And the closer you get to any church, the more apparent it will be to you. That there is among all these people a degree of moral decay. Now, suppose, as I said, you, you, the instant you decide to know right from wrong, you can know. Suppose you decide not to know what then. okay now let's for a moment, I want you to try to be real honest with yourself. And I want you not to not to blink, you know not to uh, try to shift gears or anything else and, and, and say, oh, well, I'm not absolutely sure. I want you to know, I'm giving you permission right now to know what the result is of trying not to think about it where morals is concerned. You know, don't you? You may not be able to put it in exactly the same words someone else might be, but you have a feeling uh, that all is not going to be well if you decide not to think about moral issues in your own life. Now, if you'd like to put it into words or like to see it in words, turn back with me to the first chapter of Proverbs. A very pointed and I think a very important statement. Proverbs chapter one verse twenty. Wisdom, and we'll just call that you know the, the ability to evaluate things that are going on in the world, and just an awareness of things, a, a knowledge of right and wrong, a, a knowledge of good things and bad things. Wisdom cries without. She lifts her voice in the street. She's not hidden off somewhere where you have to go looking for her. She's there for you. She cries in the chief place of concourse, in the openings of the gates. In the city, she utters her words, saying, How long, you simple word, once will you love simplicity? How long? Now, the word simple is, uh, you know, it's not a difficult word. We talk about people being simple-minded, or, which basically would, would mean that they're not real bright in many cases. And essentially, in this context, it's more talking about ignorant. You know, how long are you going to love Ignorance. And the implication that wisdom tosses out us, and you said, look, I don't understand this. You must love it because you have chosen it. Here I am. I'm walking up and down the streets, and I'm saying, Joe, I'm over here. Bill, come this way. Sarah, there, here I am, here, here. And you just ignore me, and I have to conclude you don't love me. You love simplicity, ignorance. You want it. You prefer it. And it's not a bad comparison to God Almighty reaching out and and sending his word and and touching our conscience and trying to make us think that what we are doing is wrong. And we won't listen. We don't want to think about it. We prefer ignorance. How long are you going to love that? The scorners, how long are they going to delight in their scorning? How long are fools and there's that word again how long are they going to hate knowing? Well I have to conclude that this fellow hates knowing because knowing is so easy. All he has to do is is listen. All he has to do is turn around and walk this way. All he has to do is listen to his heart, his conscience, and he'll know. It isn't that he cannot, he can. So he must love it. That's all I can conclude. He hates knowledge. Turn at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit to you, I will make known my words to you. And here's that result that we all fear. Because I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand, and nobody would listen. You have said it not, all of my counsel, all of my advice. I give you advice, and you have esteemed my advice to be absolutely worthless. It was right there for you. It wasn't somewhere you had to go looking for it. And truth to tell, for most of us, the advice of God is not far off. All we have to do is go to our knees in a private place and ask for it, and it's there. But you didn't want to make a decision. You wanted to avoid decision-making, In the process you decided not to know. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes. When your fear comes as a desolation, and your destruction like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish comes upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me early, and shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge. They just didn't want to know. Hated knowing. They did not choose the fear of the Lord. They wouldn't have any of my advice. They despised all of my reproof. And verse 31 is the sad verse. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. I could stand here and tell you God's going to get you. And that's not my point. Because you see, when we get into moral areas, they carry with them their own penalty. They don't require God to lift a finger. God doesn't have to call an angel over and say, No, nah, angel... Michael, uh, I have an unfortunate duty for you. So-and-so has sinned. You must now go and punish him. No, it isn't necessary. What God says is that if you just keep on not listening and you keep on deciding not knowing, that it is the fruit of your own doings that you're going to eat. It is your own devices that you're going to be filled with. For the turning away of the ignorant shall kill them. Because they loved it. That's what they wanted. The turning away, and it is an apt simile, in a way, to think of, that here is a person who knew God, understood his way, knew the Ten Commandments, knew those beautiful moral precepts that if a man shall walk in them, he shall live, understood these things, and actually knew how to worship God. And then for reasons that are difficult to fathom, he decides to turn away and to take his eyes off of those things, and almost as though you pretend for a moment in time that they do not exist. The turning away of the simple shall, shall slay them. The prosperity, and there again is another part of the problem, the fools shall destroy them. But the person who listens to me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. You know, you could just as easily change the word wisdom to conscience. Because for any person who has known God for any period of time at all, for any person who understands God in any way, who actually has the Bible and has read it to someone, all you've got to do is just stop and listen to your conscience. Your conscience will say you should not know how to do it. You know better than that. The problem, you see, is not one of not knowing. The problem is, not, is one of not deciding to know. Because when you have decided to know right from wrong, you will know. But that's where the problem is because then you still have that one more decision to make. It isn't enough to decide to know. You have to then decide to do it. And that's the part that you and I tend to be afraid of at different times in our life. Not afraid of knowing, but afraid of doing. And if we know and don't do, we're more afraid of that. And so we move one step back from it, and we try our best not to think about it. And then there's some fellow like me that comes along and makes you think about it. What's expected of you then? What is it exactly that you are expected to do? Well, one thing that's not expected of you is to become the moral policeman of the church. There's nothing in anything that I am saying here today that should cause anyone to sort of cast his eye out and look out of the corner of his eye and look around at the people who are here and begin to wonder and to think and to analyze about, well, is he really right? Or I don't think he's really measuring up because you have fallen right back into the old trap that Paul described of measuring yourselves by yourselves and evaluating yourselves among yourselves. You're making a very serious mistake. You're not called upon to do that. You don't have to become the moral policeman of the church. You are called upon to personally keep on doing what is right in God's eyes. That's what you're called upon to do. And that can be one of the hardest things in your life you'll ever face. Because you are called upon to do this no matter what others do. As one man put it, it doesn't matter so much that I am defrauded. That can happen to a Christian. What does matter is that I'm not defraud. Actually, the way he put it is that it doesn't even concern God so much that I am defrauded. He can see me defrauded with and just watch it happen and not lift a finger. But what does concern him very much is that I not defraud. You have got to personally keep on doing what is right in God's eyes no matter what other people say. And maybe the hardest part of all, because it is so subtle, you have got to keep on doing what is right in God's eyes no matter what other people say tolerate. So subtle. You see, because the group of us here tolerate certain behavior in you, you could make a very serious mistake in assuming that God tolerates that same behavior. And you can know the difference, you just have to decide, you see, to know. What is required of you is required of you to personally keep on doing what is right in God's sight. No matter what others do, or say, or tolerate, Christianity is, after all, a moral religion. You have heard Ronald L. Dark. If you would like more information on available tapes and materials, write to Christian Educational Ministries, Post Office Box 560, White House, Texas, 75791.